Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. This morning as we examine Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at uh, the priorities of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 45 in Mark 1. So the scripture should be on the screen above. If you guys will follow along there, keep your Bible out. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. Follow along as I read. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I was looking this week on some information about priorities and I read about a job description that had been posted. It was a job for a photographer uh, at a newspaper and here was the question to try and outline the priorities if you have a choice of saving a drowning man or getting a pulitzer prize winning photograph what type of film do you choose you get it okay anyway all right so what's the priority there the drowning man or the photograph the photograph Uh, We talk a lot today about priorities. Something you should know about priorities is the word was first introduced into the English language in the 1400s. And for most of its life, the word priorities was singular. It was only ever priority. It was a singular word because the word Uh, itself means that which is prior, that which is of first importance. And they seem to understand something that we don't understand, how many things can actually be of first importance. Just one. And maybe one of the things that we should try to do as people that live in a busy and anxious culture is to try and make that word priority singular only again. Companies... One guy who I like to read says, Companies and people routinely try and make priority plural. Companies will talk about pri one, pri two, pri three, pri four, pri five. And the impression you get is that if everything is a priority, then what? Nothing really is a priority. This kind of follows along with 
something that's very popular in our day, and that's the myth of multitasking. It is possible to do two things at the same time. Many of you watch TV while cooking dinner. You answer email while you're on the phone. It's not that we can't do two or three things at one time. It's that we can't concentrate but on one thing at a time. Some statistics say that people check their email on average every five minutes. And that when you do that, on average, it takes 64 seconds to get back to the task you were doing. Which means that if you check your email every five minutes, you're wasting two out of every six or one-third of the time. Because we're able to only concentrate on one thing at a time. The word multitasking wasn't used until the 1960s. And do you know what it was used to describe? A computer. A computer can multitask because to a computer, everything is just zeros and ones. Everything is equally the same, and it can process that at the same time. It can multitask precisely because it's not a human. And one of the things that we need to realize in our day and in our time is that the number one thing you have to give to the world, the number one commodity that you have is not your money and it's not your time. Your time and your money follow your most important commodity. Do you know what it is? It's your attention. Your attention is what everybody wants. Your attention is what everybody is after because if they get your attention, they get your time and they get your money, don't they? And so what you attend to has to be thought about and prioritized before you even step out into the world. Everyone has value and worth. And so it makes our attention very important. We need to give up on the idea of multitasking, something that maybe I'll go into a little bit more later, but something that we need to really also change is the idea that the word busy is a positive notion. I mean, it used to be when you asked people, hey, how you doing? The thoughtless answer was, I'm good. That is thoughtless because we're very rarely good as we should be. Or maybe some of you are blessed and you're good all the time. Praise the Lord for you. Come be my friend. But really, the answer is no longer I'm good. The answer is, how are you? It's I'm busy. And what's behind that is the notion that to be busy is to be needed, and to be needed is to be important. And, and really what it's saying, if we have eyes to see it, is when I hear the words, I'm busy, it means I think too much of myself. There are times in our life where we are pushed to the wall, right? But if you're pushed to the wall all the time, it's not because you're important. It's because you're unwise. The Bible has this mindset that we're, as creatures, to be small and to be doing our job in our place for the glory of God. And what that turns into and what society pushes with constant five-point things about being more productive is that if you were just a little more productive, then you could be God. And in reality, that's what many of us are after. We either want to be God or we want others to think that we are. And so our priorities get all mixed up. 
And one of the things that you'll notice about Jesus, especially in today's text, but throughout the Gospel of Mark, is how unhurried he was. How unhurried he was. He did have nights where he stayed up late and he didn't get rest. That's part of the human condition. He had times when he was overloaded and had to get away, yes. But in general, our Lord is unbusy and unhurried. Really what we discover, are you ready? Is that the Messiah didn't have a Messiah complex. And so what we need to do today as we look at Jesus is we need to see what were his priorities. And we need to contrast that with the priorities of the disciples because we're disciples and we have wrong priorities and we want to learn from our Lord what it means to have a priority and to stick with it. And so let's look first of all at the priority of the disciples. Now you think, well, I don't know what the priority of the disciples was, except it seems like they were after a good thing. After all, what does it say? It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And then look, and Simon, and maybe, most likely, they were at Simon's house. Remember in our last text, Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, and she served them all. So maybe he was at Simon's house, and so Simon felt compelled to kind of keep a watch on Jesus as a guest. I don't know. It says, and Simon and those who were with him did what? Searched for Jesus, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. The priority of the disciples is revealed in a couple of words, searched and everyone. Now, what do I mean by the priority of the disciples in that word searched? Well, Two or three commentators pointed out this week that that word searched, whenever people were hunting for Jesus, it's never a good thing in the Gospel of Mark. And that word searched literally means to pursue, to hunt down, to track. That word search has a, a hostile sense. David Garland says, looking for, quote unquote, looking for in Mark always has a negative connotation. And so Peter was hurried and harried. He was searching, trying to hunt down Jesus. He was busy in his soul. And the reason he was busy in his soul is because his priorities uh, were dominant but wrong. What's his priority? Well, every, everyone is looking for you. Why, why is that a big deal? Well, at that moment, who is Peter trying to make happy? Everyone. In other words, Jesus, we, we got a movement starting here. You're, you're popular. People are coming from all over. We got to keep this train a rolling. And everybody's looking for you. And if they can't find you, they might leave. And then that would be a sign of disapproval. And I don't want you to be disapproved because I've attached myself to you and I need you to be popular. In this passage, we see one of the most pernicious of all fears, the fear of disapproval. The Bible says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Uh, someone who's very big right now is a man named Jordan Peterson. I've read a good bit of what he's had to say and listened to him quite a lot. He's a psychology professor who's kind of turned very popular because he uh, is kind of standing up against 
the, the culture and its demand for inclusive pronoun use and the demand that we submit to the language demands of other people. He's also standing up for men who just always seem to be the bad guy. And he's just trying to tell them good, positive things that, you know, help. And he, he wants to speak to the culture. And he, he likes to say to young people, don't go protest anything if your room is dirty. Right? Because you shouldn't think you can solve the world's problems if your room is dirty at home. Take care of the little thing you can. And he says this to men, get your lives straight. Stand up with your shoulders back. Have a little bit of confidence. He, he, he's not a believer, but he talks a lot about the stories of the Bible and how they fit into the archetypes. He's an interesting dude to listen to, and he seems to be able to stand up boldly to anybody. He'll be surrounded by people who hate everything he's saying, and he just continues to say the things that he does. But what was interesting is, this week he was asked a question. I was watching a, a, a show about him, and somebody said, uh, of these 12 rules, what's the biggest temptation you face? And he said, the biggest temptation that I face is the temptation to shade the truth and mislead people so that they won't be offended. I, I, I face the temptation to shade the truth so that people will like me. And he's like, I have to constantly fight against that, both as someone who has a public forum and as a psychologist. Boy, if he struggles with the fear of disapproval, we certainly do, don't we? And the reason that the fear of man is a snare, the reason it's so bad is because of this, and this is something that was said by a guy named John Bloom. The reason this is a big deal is that we obey whom we fear. Who you fear is important because you obey the thing that you fear. So if you fear the approval of a crowd, then you're going to obey all those subtle signals that are sent that you don't say those kinds of things and you do the kinds of things that we demand. The fear of man is a snare. The fear of man is one of the biggest besetting sins in my life. And his disciples were dealing with it as well. They were up early searching for Jesus. The crowd demanded it, so they were up when? Early. They were busy. They were harried and hurried because they didn't want the disapproval of the crowd and so they were really concerned. They were on a hunt searching for Jesus. Fear of man leads to busyness. And we obey who it is we fear. So what does the Bible say? Be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted on the earth. The Bible talks a lot, Psalm 37, about not fretting not worrying. And the reason that we should be able to do that is because God is the one who's in charge and God is the one whose business we are to be about doing. But if we fear men, we're driven by them so that we can't say the things that we need to say to them, so that we uh, fret and overthink about situations that we could cut right through if we had the courage that came from just trusting in the Lord and having his priority. And I'm talking about everything from sharing the gospel to looking at someone and saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk to your wife that way. You shouldn't talk about your husband that way. You shouldn't treat that person that way. 
You should believe in the Lord. You should not be in sin. We can't say these sort of things because we subtly want the approval of people. And here's what happens. It happens in my life, and I know it happens in yours. The great thing about obedience is not only does it please the Lord, but it also makes life really simple. And when you disobey the Lord, then there's all these layers of complication that come that are driven by the fear of men. And that's that hurriedness and that harriedness that I often know, that many of you often know, and that the disciples knew here because their priorities were strong, they were just wrong. What are the priorities of Jesus here? Well, the thing is, Jesus' priorities kept him from being caught up in the urgency. This is kind of the problem I have, and I've slammed this over the years, so just roll with it. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of what would Jesus do, because in reality, what we're usually thinking is, what has Christian culture told me that Jesus would do, right? And we begin to think that Jesus would always stop and help. Jesus would always stay and heal. Jesus would always stop and preach. Jesus would always be kind. Jesus would never... And the thing is, really, when we have such a gift of this, we smuggle beneath what would Jesus do. Really, the question is, what do I think this person would have me do? And I think, hopefully, Jesus will be okay with that. If what would Jesus do leads you to conviction, then that's great. If it leads you to anxiety, then take that bracelet off, right? Take that bumper sticker off. Because here's exactly what Jesus would do, I think. Are you ready? He would focus on the kingdom. And that means different things in different contexts, doesn't it? So I think Jesus would just have a priority and try to be really wise with it. And maybe when we think about what would Jesus do, sometimes uh, you, you have a priority and sometimes you don't. So sometimes Jesus stopped and spoke plainly. Sometimes Jesus talked in parables. And you know why Jesus talked in parables sometimes? He spoke in parables to keep it confusing. Sometimes Jesus made it confusing on purpose. Jesus would never do that. Wait till we get further on in Mark. Sometimes Jesus would touch and heal. Sometimes Jesus would make a whip. But what would Jesus always do? He would have his priorities and he would think about how wisely to live those things out in his day in and day out life. What were his priorities? Let me go back. Let's not look at that quite yet. The first priority of Jesus, and this is an ouchie, the first priority of Jesus is prayer, isn't it? What a condemning word for most of us. Mark is redundant here. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, that's redundant. We know that it was dark in the early morning, but Mark is making a point. Jesus had a priority. While it was still early in the morning, very dark, he departed. He left them, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he did what? He prayed. Despite ministry late into the night, he rises before dawn to spend time in prayer alone with God, his source of strength and guidance. Jesus chose to ignore the acclaim and move on to other villages, as we'll see later, because he had been guided by the Lord. In Luke especially, Jesus is just pictured as this model of prayer. 
He prayed before every decision he had to make. When he chose his disciples, when he was in conflict with the Pharisees on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you know what Jesus is doing in heaven at God's right hand right now? Praying. Hebrews 7 says he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. J.C. Ryle, he's a great man to read, but he always steps on your toes, says this. We ought to see in all this the immense importance of private devotion. If he who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners prayed continually, how much more ought we who are surrounded with sin? If he found it needful to offer up supplications with strong crying and tears, how much more needful is it for us who in many things daily offend? What shall we say to those who never pray at all in the face of such a passage as this? There are many such, it may be feared, in the list of baptized people who rise up in the morning without prayer and without prayer lie down at night. Many who never speak one word to God. Are they Christians? It's impossible to say they are. A praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. The spirit of adoption will always make a man call upon God. To be prayerless is to be Christless, godless, and on the high road to destruction. What shall we say to those who pray yet give little of their time to prayer? We're obliged to say that they show at present very little of the mind of Christ. Asking little, they must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace, strength, and peace and hope are small. Jesus' priority. This is the one who had the very nature of God needed to pray. If him, how much more you? Michael Reeve says, in one sense, your prayer life is disgustingly revealing. It does reveal who you really are. But here's the thing. I, I, could, I could go full on conviction here and make you feel terrible about why you and I don't pray. But guilt has not yet worked to motivate me to pray more. So what's a better motivation? If you have struggled like I do with consistent prayer, there's two things that we can do. And this is what the Lord does. The first, you can reframe your thinking about God. What do I mean by this? Spend some time if you have struggles praying in Luke 11. Because in Luke 11, Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to pray. And this is where I get that idea of reframing how you think about God. If you struggle with prayer, then you probably think about God wrongly. Either he's too tired, which is heresy, or he's too grumpy, which is unchristian, or he's too something, or you're too sinful. When you think you're too sinful to pray, it's arrogance. No, it's not. It's humility. No, it's arrogance. Because you don't pray because you sinned, and you think you're not worthy to come into God's presence... On those days when you don't sin and you feel good about praying, you're saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I can come into God's presence. Either way, who's it about? You. But who is prayer about? The righteousness that I have through Christ. I can't come on my best day, so I can come on my worst day, right? 
In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching his followers to pray, and he says this. When you pray, say, Father. Why would he start with that word? The first thing he's trying to do is to reframe how they think about God. Jesus wants them to think about God how? As Father. Later on in Luke 11, when Jesus speaks about prayer, he says to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend. And this is the story of that person in need who goes and they bang on the door of their friend's house. But Jesus says, when you want to pray, say father. And when he wants to illustrate prayer, he illustrates about a friend. It's overwhelmingly likely that one of the reasons that you and I pray so little is because we don't think of God in the correct way. He's father and he's friend. Not only do you need to reframe your thinking about the father, you need to reframe your thinking about yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, if he's a father, then what are you? Child, son, right? What sons do is speak to and receive from their fathers. We learn this uh, from Jesus. I'm going to give you a Trinitarian reference because we need one every now and then, don't we? Because our God is a Trinity, amen? Listen to what it says. Eternally, the Son, Jesus, is characterized by receiving from the Father. Now, if that's the relationship we've been brought into, then praising the Father as Jesus did, asking the Father for things as Jesus did, and depending on the Father as Jesus did, are going to be the staple parts of our communion with Him. By thanking him and praising him, we acknowledge his kindness and greatness, that he is good and that all good truly comes from him. By asking him for things, we exercise our belief that he really is the fountain of all good, and without him, we can do nothing that is actually good. So we need to reframe how we're thinking about God. He is our father and our friend, and we need to reframe how we're thinking about ourselves. That is, we're sons through Jesus, right? And if Jesus the Son praised and thanked and prayed for and received from the Father, then indeed we can do the same. So Jesus' priority was prayer. And you, I'm going to give you another priority of Jesus, even though I started with saying priority should only be single. The other priority of Jesus is the kingdom. Prayer and the kingdom. And of course, both of those just kind of flow into Jesus' priority was his Father. Jesus has priorities, kingdom and prayer. Because the kingdom was his priority, he did miracles in a place, and then he left that place. And he went somewhere else because his work wasn't primarily healing. His work was primarily proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't stay to heal. Jesus goes to preach. And this should let us know something about the healings of Christ the healings that Jesus did weren't just uh, fireworks shows to, to drum up a crowd. Jesus did miracles to show what the kingdom that he was preaching about would be like. And so he did the miracles to get you to listen so he could speak to you about the kingdom. Because one day when the kingdom came, he would make everything all right. Listen to what Robert Rayburn says. 
His disciples assumed that surely the Lord would exploit this glorious opportunity, capitalize on his sudden popularity, and there would be more of the signs and wonders that had produced such crowds in the first place. But the Lord replied that the gospel, the message of salvation, the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God is what is all important. He could heal the sick and they would still go to hell. He came, Jesus says, a preacher first and foremost and a healer only secondarily. And because the kingdom was his priority, Jesus kept moving and Jesus kept preaching. Now, priorities don't keep you from being merciful. The man asked for healing in our text and Jesus stopped and healed. But it was the the priority of God's kingdom that kept him moving and preaching. It was the priority of the kingdom that motivated his healings. And it was the priority of the kingdom that made him issue his command of silence. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him. That means with a little bit of anger. Sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Just go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. It says, but he went out and began to talk about it freely to spread the news so that what? Jesus could no longer openly do what? Enter a town but was out in desolate places. In other words, Jesus is like, kind of keep this quiet because... If, if you tell everybody about your miracle, they're just going to expect me to be the miracle worker and not the Messiah who actually has to come and establish the kingdom and die. And because he just went out and told everybody about it, Jesus couldn't even enter towns anymore. Which is why Jesus sternly charged him, don't say anything to anybody. Because Jesus' priority was the kingdom. Let me ask you this. If you look on your life, what is your priority? It's easy to tell, isn't it? How do we tell? Where we spend our time and where we spend our what? Your your checkbook and your calendar will tell you your priority. Now, we can be out in the world doing things and spending money and be about kingdom business, right? So maybe your time and your money will tell you good things. My money says good things because my wife's in charge of it. <laughs> my time kind of gets, gets me, I have to work hard. I have to work hard, not at work, but when I go home, it's difficult to want to kind of just continue to be productive. I like to, to sit down and relax. And there's a place and time for that, isn't there? But everything I do should be motivated like Jesus in this priority of the kingdom. So the question is, how do we grow in prioritizing God's kingdom? And let's remember again what God's kingdom is. Are you ready? God's kingdom is his reign in the lives of people that one day is going to issue into his reign over all the world. His reign in the lives of people. And so how do we prioritize the kingdom? Let me finish just by giving you a few points about how to share this priority of Jesus. I get these from a guy named David Murray. Listen to what it says. If you want to grow in prioritizing God's kingdom, here's what you need to do. First, you need to enter the kingdom. 
If you're not a believer, then you need to repent of your sins and your idols and your lifestyle. And you need to turn to Jesus in faith and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins and help me to live under your reign as my king. You need to do that first. Secondly, you need to make the kingdom your greatest interest. And this is where we need to grow. All right? Uh, let me ask you this. How many unreached people groups are there in the world? Who are the Democratic candidates for president? How many of you can answer the second, but you can't answer the first? Um, so who, who are the unreached people groups in the world? Uh, who did your favorite team play yesterday and or today? Okay, who are the unreached people groups in the world? What do you want for Christmas? Do you get my drift? Hey, I, I, I should be down here sitting and listening as well. We should spend some time making the kingdom our greatest interest. The kingdom of God. Right? How many of you think we should honor the soldiers? Okay. They should be honored. How many of you know the name of a martyr? Should they be honored? They fought and died for a kingdom, didn't they? Which is more important? Both are important, but one is relatively unimportant. Right? You should make the kingdom your interest. Enter the kingdom, make the kingdom your interest. Number three, give the first of your money to the kingdom. Instead of seeing how much is left over at the end of the week or the month, where should the first cut go? It's, it's going to go to your first priority. Devote the first minutes to the kingdom. I won't ask a raising of hands here, but how many of you, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is pick up your phone and not for the purposes of getting your Bible reading off of it? And then later on in the day, have the unmitigated gall like me to say, I just don't have time. Give the first of your money to the kingdom. Devote the first of your minutes to the kingdom. Commit the first day of the week to the kingdom. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. Did you know on Sunday nights we pray for unreached people groups? Did you know on Sunday nights we pray for missionaries? You may not know what you can do for the kingdom. Can I just say start there? Start there. Number six, dedicate your best energy to the kingdom. Now I'm reading this guy, so this is not me saying this because I fear you. He says, don't wait until you're old and can only offer your last remaining years to the kingdom. Serve God early, serve him young, serve him vigorously, and serve him energetically. Now, are we saying anything about the, the many and wonderful people who are dedicating their last years to the Lord? No. But I bet a lot of the people who are dedicating their last years to the Lord had known earlier to dedicate their best years to the Lord. 
And it may be that your last years are your best years, but you understand his point. Number seven, view everything through a kingdom filter. As you read and hear the news, apply the kingdom filter to it. Look at world events through the lens of the kingdom. Not what does this mean for my pocket, but what does this mean for the gospel? Number eight, choose, decide, and plan using kingdom criteria. When you're faced with major life decisions, your first question shouldn't be how will this affect my family, but how will this affect the kingdom? I would even say to some of you, and I'm so grateful that we actually have examples of this in our own life, like it seems to be when you're offered a promotion and more money, it seems like there's no deliberation. Everybody would say what you should do, what? But it moves you away from a church where you have a fruitful ministry into a new city where you have to find the new family. Have you ever thought, you know what, maybe I won't take that because I've got a real fruitful ministry going on at my church. The best churches have people that do that. Number nine, prioritize kingdom interest in your prayers. We should be praying for personal and family needs. But as he says, remember that Jesus first said, your kingdom come before he said, give us our daily bread. And here's what we'll know as we move forward. Jesus is going to need his priorities in order because we're getting ready to move in a series of contests and confrontations that he's going to have with the Pharisees. Life is getting ready to get tough for Jesus, and so he knows his priorities need to be right. What are your priorities? Are they prayer? Are they the kingdom? I am not saying you need to become a monk and pray for an hour six times a day. You know what we're talking about here. It's just to keep what's first first in all of our lives for the sake of our own lives, for the sake of others, for the sake of God's glory. This is what Jesus did, and because of that, we can be saved. Now let's go to him in prayer. Father, we really, really need help in this. And we just thank you that you are our father and our friend, and you have patience, and you offer grace. So, Lord, as we make commitments, even now as we pray, help us to be thinking about ways that we can make commitments to just be about your business. Uh, whether that be getting up a little earlier to spend a few minutes in prayer, to think through, to have a slow moment with you before the busyness of the day begins. Lord, whether that means cutting down the number of things that we're involved in, whether that means thinking about how we can engage in more kingdom business, Lord, give us grace to do that. We're weak and frail and scared. We need your help. Lord, help us to look to Jesus who had his priorities right and he had them right for our sake. Lord, help us to keep ours right for his sake. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who paid it all. Amen. Let's stand together.